hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. Well, it's been the week of the Texas Rangers winning the World Series since their inception in 1966. Many of you know I'm located in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. I grew up here as a kid, moved away for a period of time, and now I've been back and so thoroughly thrilled that the Texas Rangers brought home the pennant first time in history and they won it convincingly, even with their star at the very end. So great victory for us. And with this, launching into another week. And I have just a comment regarding lassitude or this lack of concern among the population, particularly those who are losing loved ones with COVID-19 vaccine injury syndromes multiple celebrities now, 33 in total. Most recently, Matthew Perry passed away. We don't know if it was due to the vaccine or not, but nobody's even raising the question. Perry had a t-shirt about uh, taking the vaccine. He'd had a storied career in acting, but also drug abuse, medical problems, prior cardiac arrest during procedures, perforated bowel, colon- colostomy, etc. Matthew Perry, what a medical wreck he was, uh, but a wonderful acting talent. And we just will never know if the vaccine played a role. Then we heard the story of Andrew Dunnigan, 44-year-old minister of the future for Highland Park Presbyterian Church. I used to go to Highland Park Pres, and I I listened to Dunnigan preach. And I can tell you, when his wife rolled over and found him dead in bed at age 44, a perfectly fit young man, young father, minister of the future, and how there was no outrage, there was no inquiry. The church elders quickly shut things down and said he died of natural causes. John Leake and the Courageous Discourse Substack, longstanding a resident of Highland Park, knew many in the circles of Highland Park Presbyterian Church. He wrote an, op- an op-ed, basically, in Courageous Discourse, said if, he, if someone had broken into his house and stabbed Dunnigan to death, it would have been an outrage. It would have been all over the newspaper. Everyone would have been outraged at the crime that was committed. But here, dying, uh, presumably, with no other cause outside of potentially taking a vaccine, we're told that in his circles, his family was very pro-vaccine. No outrage, complete lassitude, People just figured it was his time. His mother apparently had died at a younger age, and we've seen this now uh, in our family members. Uh, A lassitude, just a a lack of concern, uh, a lack of alarm, people passing away, and those who took the vaccine don't seem to care. Well, with that, we're going to move into a wonderful long-format interview with Dr. Donna Harrison, who is the founder of uh, uh, the uh, Hippocratic Oath uh, Medical organization and an organization that really focuses on the oath of Hippocrates. We're going to learn a lot more about it. What are they doing? Uh, the, the struggle in terms of uh, uh, pro-life and uh, pro-abortion. Show's going to enlighten us a lot more as an OB-GYN. We look forward to it. You're listening to The McCullough Report. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is The McCullough Report.
Millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of the toxic spike protein. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company designed their spike support formula to counteract harmful spike protein from COVID-19 and vaccines so you can feel your best. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought. AmericaOutloud.news, delivering a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. Here we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. Join us in the fight for liberty and justice for all. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. I'm Dr. Peter McCullough, your host, and it's a great pleasure to welcome to the microphone in our virtual studios, Dr. Donna Harrison. I just ran into Donna at the Association of American Physician and Surgeons meeting in Fort Worth, Texas. She gave a stage presentation. It was very well received, and I wanted her to come to our show and tell us about her society or her societies that she's involved with and a little bit more about her so you can get to know her. Uh, She is an obstetrician gynecologist. Dr. Harrison, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Peter, for having me. I mean, (laughs) go ahead. Can you just give us a little bit of information about your background, where you grew up, where you went to school and your training? Sure. Uh, I'm Dr. Donna Harrison. I'm an OBGYN, and I am the previous CEO of the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs. I'm their current director of research, and I'm their representative to a new group called the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine. And that that group is formed of the uh, American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs, the Christian Medical and Dental Association, the Catholic Medical Association, the Coptic Medical Association, and the American College of Pediatricians. And we've just been joined by Canadian Physicians for Life as a new organization. So it's not a membership organization. It's a alliance of like-minded organizations whose members practice according to the Hippocratic Oath. And I am one of those physicians who took the Hippocratic Oath. I trained at University of Michigan uh, way back and did my OBGYN residency at University of Michigan affiliate, St. Joseph Mercy Hospital, mm-hmm. and then practiced for 10 years before becoming involved with this part of medicine, which is a very important part, educating doctors about what the Hippocratic Oath is actually about. Mm-hmm. Terrific. You know, I went to University of Michigan as well in the School of Public Health oh. Oh, years ago. That. So it may have, uh, do you still live in Michigan now? I do. I do. I live on the west side of the state. I'm not oh, sure where you live. Very good. Well, I lived in Northville, which was okay. between Ann Arbor and Detroit. So I did my residency at uh, Beaumont Hospital, which is now the okay. school, you know Beaumont School of Medicine. I went to graduate school at University of Michigan, and you were there at in University of Michigan in OBGYN. Then you went to is it St. Joe's across the street? In, St. Joe's in Ypsilanti. Yeah, that's right. Oh, St. Joe's in Ypsilanti. Terrific. Yeah, yeah. absolutely wonderful place. Wonderful place to train. 
Now, you know, our audience uh, is partly physicians, but it's nurses, uh, others, and a lot of lay people. So they may not know about Hippocrates and the Hippocratic Oath. So maybe you can just start from the basics. What is the Hippocratic Oath? Well, the Hippocratic Oath is the reason why your doctor doesn't kill you. Uh, it, it actually forms the basis of the doctor-patient relationship. And it is a, uh, it's a promise that a doctor makes to the patient. Certain promises, like there's about six of them. One, I, as your doctor, will never intentionally harm you. I will never intentionally kill you, and I won't suggest that you kill yourself. I'll never deliberately kill your son or daughter in the womb, and I won't suggest that you kill them. If you don't have a, if you need a skill that I don't have, I'll refer to another doctor who has that skill. I won't have sex with my patients, and I won't divulge my patient's secrets. That's the oath, and that's the promise, and it's, it, forms the basis of the doctor-patient relationship. Without the oath, your doctor is no different than a used car salesman. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's so important that we retain that oath. That's It's really important that doctors adhere to this, what has been the foundation of medical ethics for the last 2,500 years until very, very recently in this country. Well, why did hypocrisies have to issue that oath? How did that ever come to be? Well, in ancient Greece, that was about 500 years BC, what you had was the the physician, a Greek physician would as soon kill you as cure you, just whoever paid the higher price, he would he was for hire. He was a technician for hire. And Hippocrates said, no, there is something different about medicine that has nothing that that should be separated from a for hire set of hands. There's something about caring for the patient no matter what, no matter whether that patient is rich or poor, no matter where they're from, that we value human life. And this particular profession, Hippocratic medical practice, is dedicated to the life of their patient. That's that's the Hippocratic doctor's primary fiduciary is the life of their patient, not the third-party payer, not the state. It's not public health. It's a doctor-patient relationship and a solemn promise of never doing your harm. Doing no harm. You know, it's also been said that uh, doctors very, very rarely ever cure patients. Uh, they only sometimes uh, help them in terms of their medical problems, but they always care about them. I think that's very important that, you know, so many patients know that uh, they're not necessarily going to be cured of, let's say, their diabetes or high blood pressure. But, you know, they, they certainly would want to do things to try to help the condition, but they always want people to, to care. And I think that's uh, very important, those uh, three levels. Uh, the other thing is, um, you know, I trained in, I went to undergraduate at Baylor and then went to medical school at UT Southwestern in Dallas. And um, at UT Southwestern, they used to treat us, they used to uh, um, teach us about the three A's of medicine. Have you ever heard of that one? No, tell me about it. The three A's. They said that basically doctors are evaluated by patients and other doctors based on the three A's. The first one and the most important is availability, believe it or not. Oh, so okay. whoever's the most available will always win in the end always went if you're just available. 
so ever since they came out for me, I think it was about 1996 or so, I've always given patients my cell phone. Now, I understand people who don't want to do this, and particularly, uh, you know, women have said, listen, you know, we don't, I don't want my cell phone out there for everybody, um, but I've always done it. And I do get multiple calls per day, but almost all of them are respectful and and people who need me. But I, I've never had a patient say, no, doctor, uh, I don't want your cell phone. I don't want to be able to get a hold of you. People want to, yeah. in in case there's really something pressing, get a hold of their doctor. So I, uh, availability yeah. is always important. And I always try to pick up and I've always done this all the way through if I'm called by a consultant. So availability is number one. That's the number one uh, quality. The second one, the second A is the um, uh, uh, amiability. That is, you know, how likable one is. It's just really, that's it. People don't want to go to someone who's not likable, doesn't want to interfere with someone or doesn't want to interact with someone who's not likable. And so amiability is number two. And then number three is the one we work so hard at, and that's aptitude. Passing all these board scores, going to University of Michigan, being top in your class, you know, all that. But that's actually number three, believe it or not. So the three A's were always the best one to be be available. And I just learned that over time. It's always good to just be available. Just check on that patient one last time. Just just triple check this, you know, this idea of being assiduous. Very, very important. But the reason why your, you know, the title of your talk at AAPS and in your affiliations, uh, I think, struck so many with interest is how in the last few years, it's been obvious that doctors have walked directly away from the Hippocratic Oath. And I, I think part of it is that the educational institutions have walked away from the oath. And I've, I'm old enough to know that when something doesn't add up, you're missing something. And mm. usually it's the money. And usually it's the political pressure. So going from a time, and at the beginning of my practice, it was almost a direct patient care. And third-party payers were just coming into the system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And with direct patient care, you have the ability to actually forgive debts. You have the ability to offer the care that the person needs and to explain to them what it is and give them an estimate of what it's going to cost, what a thought. But with the advent of the third-party payer, what you saw was somebody else is intruding in that doctor-patient relationship. Somebody else is coming between the physician and the patient, making it very difficult to focus the primary fiduciary on the patient. And when that happens, the person who pays the piper picks the tune. You've got someone who's paying for care, and now they've put springs on that care. They put fences on that care. And someone else is writing the agenda for what that care looks like for my patient. And this is in direct contrast, actually, to the Hippocratic Oath. So when you have people who are looking to make a profit, and don't kid yourself, insurance companies are there to make a profit, you have someone who's going to look at the utilitarian view of medicine. How can I maximize my profit and minimize my loss as the insurance company rather than what the doctor and the patient do, which is to say, how can I help you to achieve the maximum state of physical and psychological health possible for you? And those two things are at odds. And it goes back 
like you said, to these old dead Greeks way back to the discussion of what is medicine all about? What's the purpose of medicine? Is it to help and to care for an individual patient because that's what you think is the good and right thing to do? Or is it to maximize some other goal, some other idea? Is it to maximize what the patient always wants, even if what the patient wants isn't good for them? Look at the opioid epidemic. There's patients who come in who want opioids that will kill them. And as a physician, you have to say, no, that it's really not good for you. That's really not in your best health. There's many examples of times when the physician has to think about what they're there for, which is to maximize the patient's health, not to do everything that the patient asks for, because sometimes it's not good, and actually not to do everything that the state asks for. So this is where the focus of my talk was, to talk about how in the last, well, probably two decades, we've seen an unprecedented usurping of the state intruding into medical care. And where that interdigitates with MIMOS is, of course, on the beginning of life issues. I had the, the opportunity to go incognito to the first international pro-abortion conference in the world, okay, medical conference. And what I learned there was a little bit astounding. And I'll just give you one uh, example from a breakout session. They were talking about what are the uh, obstacles to making abortion, elective abortion, available worldwide. Okay? So hold that thought there. And what they said was, in this conference, was that there's four obstacles. Number one, conscientious objection by Hippocratic healthcare physicians. Number two, the presence of the Roman Catholic Church and Protestant missionaries in healthcare. Number three, ultrasound, which unfortunately turns the mind of the mother toward the humanity of her fetus. And number four, the people don't want elective abortion, but we're going to give it to them anyway through the legal system. I was astounded. What an a, a, uh, elitist view and having nothing to do and actually directly opposed to the Hippocratic Oath, which they knew very well. So that began a two-decade-long war on conscientious objection and on the Hippocratic Oath, which has continued to this day. So that was part of my talk was to, to explain that the, um, the, the state actors that want control of medicine see physicians as agents of the state. It's even, they even published this in the New England Journal. Hmm. One of the most scathing reviews was from a law professor, Alta Charo, from University of Wisconsin. And she wrote, The Celestial Fire of Conscience, Dishonorable Disobedience in Medical Care. And what she said was, because physicians are licensed by the state, they are agents of the state, and they are obligated to do everything that they ask them wow. to do. If you know anything about history, that's terrifying. Because we've done this experiment in history, and it does not turn out well. Look at Stalinist Russia, Nazi mm. Germany. Now is China, Cuba. You look at places where the state controls the doctors, they're the most dangerous people on the planet. So, Oh, that's I, a stunning set of uh, revelations. 
You know, this is a topic that I previously haven't covered, actually, either on the Substack or Courageous Discourse. Um, and it's not one that I profess any scholarship in, but but I have to ask you, um, how did this whole issue of, of, of pro-life versus abortion, uh, how did it develop over time? I mean, how age old is this debate? And what you know what are the drivers of it yeah it's a great question it does go back as at least as far as hippocrates because that's why hippocrates says right. i'm not going to give a woman something to cause her an abortion but if you look in this country there was a sense that we all abided by the hippocratic oath until like sort of the 50s 40s 50s so what happened I'll tell you what happened. The beginning of the 1900s, you know, around 1910, 1920, 1930, there was a insanity that spread through certain parts of the population that we had too many people on the planet and we had to get rid of the bad people and, you know, allow for the good people. And that was sort of the eugenics movement of the time. In the 1930s, the Rockefeller Foundation set up the, the Office of Population at Princeton, okay, and that was to do research on population issues with the understanding of population control. In the 1950s, John D. Rockefeller III pulled together very uh, uh, elitist funders as well as conservationists and other people and formed what's called the Population Council. Population Council was to uh, fund research and to do research on how to control the population, which they considered to be out of control, too many poor people reproducing. So they were going to look at ways of controlling the population. This wouldn't have meant much except that it also became a, a uh, idea that took hold in the U.S. government. So I'll give you an example. Population Council was given grants to look at funding uh, a, a kind of a drug that would cause early pregnancy to die. Okay, it's a luteolytic antiprogesterone. Well, that reality came about in the 1980s. And that research was funded by USAID and the National Center for Child Health and Human Development. That's federal funding of the current drug that is used for abortion. It's, it's Mifeprex is the, is the trade mm -hmm. name. Mifepristone is the generic name. But we have such a committed interest in population control that it, it became a top-down imposed policy. And if you want to just check me out, say, what's Harrison talking about? I encourage you to Google the Kissinger Memorandum, this is 1974, and this is Henry Kissinger, who attended an, the first ICPD, International Conference on Population and Development. And at the ICPD, they concluded that there were, uh, the problem was the growing population in uh, developing countries, and that's developing countries where uh, we wanted resources. And so we had to control the development of the population. And that, unfortunately, 
is was the beginning of the program called USAID, which tied development funds to population control and the willingness of the government to do population control. So this is this is the big movement that came in. And there was a reference to it in a salon interview uh, with um, Dr. Uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Ginsburg, when she was, you know, on the cusp of retirement. And she was asked, you know, tell me about Roe versus Wade, because she was in the judiciary. And she said, well, Roe versus Wade, I was surprised at how far they went, because there was a great discussion at that time of, you know, too many people. And, um, and there was issues of Medicaid funding. So we thought Roe versus Wade would control the Medicaid population, populations we didn't want too many of. And I mean, when I first heard that, I was, I was aghast because I was really pretty naive about um, the, the funding side of the abortion industry. But this is where the money comes from. It right. comes from people who think right. that there are too many people on the planet. Before we get too much farther into this, can you sketch out to at least our American audience um, what this issue really is in terms of how many women come forward for elective termination of a pregnancy per year? And then how is that actually done? How many are just with Mifeprostone or with misoprostol and how many are are surgical procedures? Yeah. So it's a, it's roughly one out of three to one out of four pregnancies in this country, which is around one and a half million uh, per year, 1.3 million. So it's a lot of people who are no more. Um, and I think we need to take a, a pause just a second to look at defining what we're talking about because abortion has multiple different medical and lay definitions. And you can argue past each other by using different definitions. And we saw this happen after the Dobbs decision. Uh, the organization that I'm with, the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs, has spent the last 50 years looking at the effects of abortion on women, because we all know the effects on the, the human being in the womb. But what we found is that abortion really hurts women, and it hurts them in multiple different ways, one of them being increased risk of preterm birth and subsequent pregnancies, and also adverse mental health outcomes even for women who have unwanted, unplanned pregnancies. If you look at women who abort those unwanted, unplanned pregnancies versus women who give birth to those, the women who abort are at increased risk of suicide, drug abuse, and hospitalizable major depression. Hmm. So what is it that we're talking about? We're not talking about separating a mom and a baby when the mom's life is in danger. Every OB-GYN does that. Pro-life OB-GYNs do that because... When a mom's life is in danger and the baby is too young to survive outside, if you don't separate her, you lose mom and baby. If you do separate, knowing that the baby will die, you can save the mom. And an example of this is an ectopic pregnancy. So okay. we've always done ectopic pregnancy treatment. Pro-life OBGYNs do that all the time. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing that, that was confused recently is people are talking about miscarriages as abortions. They're not abortions. The difference between a miscarriage and an elective abortion is that in a miscarriage, the baby's dead. And in an elective abortion, the baby's not dead until the abortionist kills that baby. Now, so now for, mis- for miscarriages um, of, of 
of women who conceive and become pregnant. I mean, the rate I know is about 15% of, um, you know, of pregnancies in the first trimester become miscarriages. Yeah, it depends a little bit on how you look at it, because there are times when the uh, sperm and egg meet and the women, woman never misses her period. So that may be up to, the rough guess would be a third of the time that the sperm and egg meet, the baby doesn't get to the point where it implants and grows enough to cause the woman to miss her period. She may never know. Once you get a, a baby with a heartbeat, though, and that's that's kind of that five, six weeks, once the baby reaches the point of having a heartbeat, it is it is probably maybe max 13%, maybe less than that. Okay. Most of those babies with a heartbeat, that's kind of the marker. So before that, of the thousands of things that have to happen, you know, to get to that point, some of them don't happen. So you have what we call blighted ovum or times when there's no fetus at all develops. But, what, but what's, the most you, com- what's the most yeah. common reason, though? If so a first trimester spontaneous abortion, is, is it... Um, is it some? Is it a fetal malformation happening, or is it uh, just just failure to really gestate? And is it just hemorrhagic in the womb, or or what yeah, is the we, most common? Uh, it it's most of the time it's because there's some sort of a chromosomal mismatch, and you don't of the thousands of things that have to happen to form a fetal body, some of them don't happen. So you get to the point where the the embryo just doesn't develop to mm-hmm. being able to live and continue so that's the most common reason is that 15 percent rate in humans is that the same for for dogs cats other mammals do you know i don't know not a vet but that would be an interesting question to know Hmm. i don't know that it's been studied except maybe in very expensive animals like horses probably Mm -hmm. they do know the answer to that Mm -hmm. and of the the, the 1.5 million uh, the uh, quote that you gave, um, you yeah. know, this women who actually just, they make the decision, they make the conscious decision yeah. to to have an abortion. W- what percent of those are, in a sense, you know, a chemical abortion, taking mifepristone, misoprostol? Well, the most recent estimate is about 60%, maybe up to 70 now. So okay. it's uh, the majority are this chemical abortion. That's the majority. Yeah, there's a recent paper in New England Journal. Yeah, there's been a recent paper in New England Journal Medicine on this, and um, as I recall, the the success rate of actually prescribing these medicines uh, and and having them work is something like ninety eight percent. So it's it's pretty high. Depends. It depends on the gestational age. So if you take mifeprex, mifepristone, I'm going to use the generic name so there's no trade name to it. You take mifepristone before seven weeks you've got about a 95% chance that the woman will completely pass the fetus and the, and the pregnancy tissue. Um, but if but she's got about a 5%, so about a 1 out of 20 rate that she will need surgery to complete that abortion. If you go up to 13 weeks, she's got a 1 out of 3 chance that she will need surgery. Mm. So the only way that you can actually get informed consent in this issue is to do an ultrasound. And that's one point that we've been making over and over. A woman cannot be given informed consent unless she knows the gestational age of that baby because she doesn't know how far along she is. And her and, risk of needing surgery increases dramatically 
as the pregnancy progresses. And of these 1.5 million who, who go down this pathway, what percent get an ultrasound? Well, that's a very good question because at the at the initial um, all the all the initial studies for the approval of Mifeprex used ultrasound to date the the pregnancy, but FDA never required an ultrasound, so it is unknown how many get them. Hmm. It is it would actually be a violation of informed consent for someone to give a woman Mifeprex without giving her an ultrasound, not only because of the gestational age but also because you don't know where that pregnancy is at. And somewhere between one out of 30 and one out of 50 women have that baby located in their tube, not in their womb. This is really dangerous because the symptoms of a rupturing ectopic pregnancy are pain and bleeding. The symptoms of a mifeprex abortion are pain and bleeding. So there have been women who have had an ectopic pregnancy, pregnancy in their tube, had terrible pain and bleeding, called the abortion clinic and were told, honey, that's a normal part of an abortion, lay down, and they died because oh they hemorrhaged internally and they didn't make it to the hospital. So, so that, it, that's malpractice because so, they are obligated to rule out ectopic pregnancy before giving mifepristone. Right. Okay. So I was going to try to nail that down. So uh, so an ectopic pregnancy is an absolute contraindication to giving mifepristone or misoprostol. Okay. That's correct because neither mifepristone nor mesoprostol treat the ectopic pregnancy. They don't cause the ectopic pregnancy to stop growing. Mm-hmm. And so the pregnancy continues until the tube ruptures. So how, what would it, this whole field look like? Because it sounds like it's been a, you know, an age-old debate, people on one side of this. And, and for whatever reason, this appears to be some of the most charged arguments uh, I'm 60 years old. For as long as I can remember, this issue has been a political issue, and everybody needs to state where they are in this position. And and they're they're non doctors, they're government politicians saying at a certain number of weeks, and they feel like they have to stake out a position. What would it be like if the government simply just was not in the business of this? That the government had nothing to do with this? Well, what would it I be? don't I, I don't think that. I think as long as you have people, we have to get to the point where we understand we take care of other people. We don't kill people to solve social problems. No, I, no, I understand the ethical so, issues, but let's let's so just tackle right. the government part of it first. You know, let's say there's another contentious issue, like, um, you know, should we use a chiropractor for back pain or do back pain surgery? And then the government says, well, we need to guarantee back pain surgery to everybody who has back pain. And then the government has a position. And then all the politicians say, well, are you for surgery or are you for... And everyone's starting to stake a position on some medical issue. For this issue, what if the government... Let's just start there. What if the government was not involved? Period. I can't imagine it because it's a human rights issue. It's an issue of what do we do with this human being? And are we going to recognize this human being in the womb as part of the family of humanity? I mean, this well, let, let me try to rephrase it. Is, another, another, is a person. So the government has to decide. The humanity ethical issues we can get to in a minute. But yeah. are there countries in the world where the government is not involved in this? I don't know. <laughs> I do know it's heavily involved in the United States. And I, I see it as the foremost civil rights issue of our time. Okay, uh, no, I understand that. But 
but uh, you know one one step because whether the government's in it one direction or another the government's involved in a in somehow an issue and um if the government was not involved and i would bet in some countries the government's not involved at all I, i'd be curious to know um but i imagine that it's not a government issue everywhere but if the government issue if the government was not involved in it um like the government should not be involved in back pain or or or, or some other you know medical issue then then they can get down to some type of uh, reasonable discussion we could get to the hippocratic oath for instance so you know a doctor may say listen i took the hippocratic oath you know i, I took an oath to preserve life fight disease i'm just not going to participate in this right well, and and if everybody took that oath you know, great. <laughs> the problem may get really pretty small. It would be great if doctors really understood and valued the life of that human being in the womb. Because well, for, see, part well, of but, but part of the issue is, it, let's take it to something like slavery. Okay, could the government just not get involved in slavery? Well, you have a person, you have a human being, who the Supreme Court said was not really a whole person. Well, that's ridiculous. There are no human beings that aren't persons. But when we can exclude a whole class of human beings from this, this idea of the circle who we protect, <clears throat> then we get the situation where we can kill some human beings and say, oh, doesn't matter, they're not a person. Well, the fact is that every human being is a person. And, and when we don't treat other people like people like persons, give them the respect that they deserve, then you end up with huge civil rights violations. And we have right now a huge civil rights violation. We've got persons in the womb, we have human beings in the womb who are non-persons and so can be disposed of as property. And we fought this war back in the 1850s. It's time for us to extend the, the protection and the care for all human beings, regardless of their age, their disability, we're there because we're all in this together. Well, I think you make a pretty powerful argument. We've been talking to Dr. Donna Harrison from Michigan, and uh, she is leading the charge for uh, multiple ethical groups in obstetrics and gynecology regarding the issue of elective uh, abortion. I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. We're listening to the McCullough Report. We'll take a pause right here. And we'll be back with you in just a minute. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report. You wouldn't go a day without brushing your teeth or washing your hands. What about washing your nose? I mean, your nose does filter the air you breathe, air loaded with bacteria, viruses, and irritants. Make nasal hygiene part of your routine with Clear. No messy bottles to fill, no drowning sensation. Clear is a natural drug-free saline with the added benefit of xylitol, which blocks bacterial and viral adhesion. Available in stores and online at clear.com. That is X-L-E-A-R.com. The Natural Colon Cleanse. It's the ultimate digestive tune-up with Oxy Powder. It's crafted to alleviate the discomfort of gas, bloating, and occasional constipation. There's a reason why Oxy Powder is our number one seller. It worked. Go to AmericaOutloud.shop and get 15% off using the code 
out loud, global healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, and sleep deep. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Out loud. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report. I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. We are in, I think, a pretty tense ethical discussion over the issue of elective abortion that is terminating pregnancies early. We've learned in the United States it's about 1.5 million uh, mothers elect to do this. Uh, that roughly 60% are done with oral medication called mifepristone. It can also be done with misoprostol. And and I challenged Dr. Harrison. I said, what if the government just wasn't in this? Because I I always find it odd that that a politician picks a certain week of gestation. Well, I'm a 15-weeker. I'm a 13-weeker. I was like, wait a minute, this guy's a politician. How can they possibly be, you know, know, metering out uh, a, a pregnancy? And uh, Dr. Harrison came back and said, wait a minute, this is a civil rights issue like slavery. And I, I think that's a pretty powerful uh, argument. Um, but what was Roe versus Wade and what's happened with recent Supreme Court decision? Let's say for our Australian audience, our European audience that just doesn't, they don't know this the, these cases. Okay, so back in the 1970s, up to the 1970s, from the founding of the country, until about 72, 73, you had a, a round of a majority of states, I think it was like 46 out of 50, who said that uh, elective abortion would not be performed in their state. It would not be legal. But in 1973, <clears throat> the Supreme Court issued a decision called uh, Roe versus Wade, which actually created the trimester system, believe it or not, Peter. There was no trimester system in OB until Roe versus Wade. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. So the first trimester, the court said, states are not allowed to make any laws to forbid abortion, no matter what. Second trimester, states can make some laws for mother's health and safety, but all of those have to have a maternal health exception. Can't think about the human being in the womb at all. In the third trimester, states may make some laws based on the potential personhood of the fetus. But mm-hmm. all of those had to have a health exception. Well, what mm-hmm. does health mean? It turns out the same day that Roe versus Wade was was issued, the Supreme Court issued a simultaneous companion decision, which defined health. And that was called Doe versus Bolton. And Doe versus Bolton defined health as any physical, psychological, familial, financial, or any other reason. So it was actually Doe versus Bolton that legalized abortion through birth because all of the laws had to have a health exception defined as any reason. It was very clever and, and allowed for babies to be, you know, partially delivered and killed in the process of delivery. It's called a, a partial birth abortion. It allowed for that legally, and that was the law of the land until the Dobbs decision. The Dobbs decision basically said that the court was in fundamental legal error 
when it made Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton. And Dobbs they, just recently happened, right? Yeah, in 22. Uh, 2022. Okay. Um, and, and at that point, um, what they said was, we're not going to be the, the U.S. Medical Board. We are going to turn this decision back to the states. And, but what we can say as a Supreme Court is that there is no constitutional right to an abortion. And that was huge. And we were prepared. American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs was prepared to paper up we were ready because we've been studying this issue for 50 years mm-hmm. and we expected an intelligent discussion about the effects of abortion on women and, and, you know, what, where the fetus is in its development, um, his or her development. We expected that discussion. We were ready for it. And instead we got medical insanity. We got medical professional societies saying, you can't get a topic pregnancy care, well, which is like we started about before. It's ridiculous. Yeah, we already said, covered hey, you that. You can't, <laughs> can't get miscarriage care. All of that was ridiculous. And what it showed to us is that <clears throat> the, uh, med- the medical societies that want to promote abortion will do everything to avoid talking about what an abortion is. And an abortion is a procedure or drug which is done for a particular purpose. And that purpose is to produce a dead baby. And let me give you an illustration of that. If you have a 32-week abortion, time when the baby could survive outside the womb, and the baby lives, what's it called? It's a failed abortion. The separation of the mom and the baby did not fail to occur. What failed to occur is the baby failed to die. So when you understand that the purpose of an elective abortion is to produce a dead baby, then that makes it crystal clear what it is that we have a discussion about. We don't think that you solve a social problem by killing people. It's just not not what you do. You solve social problems with social solutions. So, so let's we, go back to my question, though, about the Hippocratic Oath. If 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 all OBGYNs follow the Hippocratic Oath, how big of a problem would this be? Well, I don't know. I would love to see that day because OBGYNs of all people should know they have two patients. And way back, Williams Obstetrics, when you and I trained, that's how Williams Obstetrics opened. You you are in the profession with the privilege of having two patients. Right, right. So, but Donna, how many, how many uh, obstetricians out there in the United States and how many perform abortions? That's a great question. There are about 56,000 OBGYNs across the country, and there have been three studies, and these have been done by abortion providers. Mm-hmm. And they show that at academic institutions, 75% of OBGYNs do not do abortions. And in general practice, somewhere between 85 and 93% of OBGYNs do not do abortion. So when our professional society, the American College of OBGYN, comes out with its rabid insane pro-abortion statements they do not represent most OBGYNs. Yes. Most so it's of us care 15% of of OBGYNs who are not following the the hippocratic oath why yep. are the societies and even governmental bodies why are they so pro-abortion why does this why does this become such a hot button issue for them i I think there is a uh, a eugenic issue 
component to this, which can't be denied. Wow. And that's where the money comes from. And so I'm old enough to know that you follow the money. And what we have is funders of the abortion industry, funders um, like Bill Gates, like George Soros, those who are committed to seeing a reduction in population, uh, they fund this. And unfortunately, I think our major medical society, American College of OB-GYN, has fully bought into the eugenic argument, and they fully support killing human beings as an answer to social problems. And so do you think that it is the funding sources, the funding going to the society to change their opinions? Uh, or, or does funding actually go to the doctors performing these? I mean, is it a lucrative thing to do? Or Well, it's a very lucrative thing to do. Um, and the reason it's lucrative, is if you think about it, for a surgical abortion, you can charge, depending on the gestational age, anywhere from $500 to $2,000 for a 10-minute procedure. Uh, you just think about that. Very little malpractice insurance. Patients almost never sue because they don't want to be in front of a court. But but do the doctors get paid that much just to prescribe the drugs? It's just a few doses of the drugs. Well, it is a few doses of the drugs. And that's a very interesting question, how much the doctors get paid, because the doctors are rarely the ones who dispense the drugs. It's usually a nurse or somebody else who's hired by the clinic, maybe even might be a midwife or a PA, but it's not the doctors necessarily. So someone is making a lot of money because they'll charge as much for a for dispensing the pills as they will for a surgical abortion. Oh my and then God. remember, so, some of these women will have to come back for an additional surgical I know, procedure. but still, that's a minority. So, so if, you know, 500 to $2,000 to prescribe just a few pills. And we don't even know if they're getting an ultrasound or not. Uh, they don't have to. So, and if, so, you're, if they're being prescribed by telemedicine, they aren't getting an ultrasound. Well, yeah, in for fact, sure. They, so so now that would explain it. The, these clinics could make a lot of money with yeah. that type of volume, with the vast majority just getting the prescription medicines, no ultrasound. It doesn't sound like much in the way of follow-up. That's basically no hands on. happening. And, and okay. they, uh, there's also a couple other dangers. One is how in the world can you screen for sex trafficking when all you see is someone on this side of the screen. You guys looking at me have no idea who else is in the room here. Whether someone's, you know, holding a gun to the head of this yeah. woman who's who's talking. And you don't even know if the woman who's talking to you is the one who's going to get the pill. Because you could have you could have uh you know, a pimp. You know, so, someone so, running their herd or so, a pill for somebody else. So Donna, getting back to Dobbs Dobbs yeah. returned the decision to the states. And you said yeah. before Roe versus Wade, about 46 states, uh, you know, b- basically, you know, said abortions were not lawful. So are, are we are we returning to that now? What's happening since Dobbs? Well, you've got major confusion, as I was alluding to before. You have the major medical societies saying things that have no medical basis, like uh, okay. you can't get yeah, but this forget what they're saying. Show. What are states actually doing right now? Has any state said we're just not going to participate in this? Well, anymore? I believe Texas had a uh, a law outlawing abortion from the time of the heartbeat, which is about five to six weeks gestation. So about two weeks after she misses her period. So, and I think there's a couple other laws. I'm not I, I I'm not a lawyer, so I do, I am not like moment to moment up to date on where the states are. But I think there's probably like maybe half a dozen states that have 
outlawed abortion from the time you can detect a heartbeat. Because that's really, at that point that you detect a heartbeat, the chances of miscarrying are, are much, much less. So that mm. is really the point of saying, yes, definitively, we have someone here who's, if left alone, likely to proceed through birth, toddlerhood, adulthood, you know, one continuous existence. So that that's a logical point, uh, one logical point of starting to say we are going to protect human beings in the womb. And is anything being done in medical school or an OBGYN residency to reinforce the meaning of the Hippocratic Oath and try to get a handle on people who are doing this? And how about nursing? What nurse would participate in this? Well, I don't know about nursing, but as far as OBGYN training, we have a very interesting situation right now. The ACGME, Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education, said in 2019 that all OBGYN training programs have to have as a core part of their curriculum training in elective abortion, but an individual resident could opt out of it. Now, here you are as a medical resident, you're hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt, and you're going to go to the people who have the ability to make sure you never graduate and say, I'm not going to participate. I mean, you can imagine the coercion. So I know at least a dozen brilliant female, I I mean, it could be male too, but I know them, I know the female OBGYNs, students who would have gone into OBGYN, but they don't want to kill their patients. So they went into something else. What a tragedy. But, I mean, but look at the lack of you, you mentioned in practice, you know, let's say 85% don't do it, so they don't have to. But wouldn't it be reasonable to go through the training to learn about the complications? Because I imagine when there's a complication, they may not go back to the abortion clinic. They may go to the ER and see the OBGYN on call. Absolutely. But you get plenty of experience handling complications by looking at complications from miscarriages or or other kinds of surgery, or handling the complications as you go in the ER. You don't have to be the one to end the life of that human being to manage the complications. And the issue is ACGME is trying to force all OBGYN residents to do elective abortion, to end the life of that baby, knowing that once you as a physician violate your oath and you kill another human being, it becomes easier to do it and easier to do it. It's a and kind is of this, this is a trend over time. Like I, I trained, um, you know, at, at Parkland in 1984 to 1988, then University of Washington in Seattle, right. Michigan later on. I don't remember any of that when I did OB-GYN back then, but is this a trend in the last few years or how long 20, has this been? 20, 2019. So actually the attempt to, to force OB-GYN residents to do elective abortions has been since 1994. And that's when American Association of Pro-Life OB-GYNs screamed to Congress. And that's where the Weldon Amendment and the Coates Snow Amendment came from, is because ACGME tried to force OB-GYN residents to do abortions. And we said, we will not do it. So what happened is with those two amendments, ACGME said, okay, you need to offer abortion training as a training program elective abortion training, but you can opt in to that. So we lived in the era of the opt-in. We trained in the Mm. era of the opt-in. But now, as of 2019, ACGME said it's an opt-out. So they're in a unique position, especially in Texas, of requiring training in a procedure that's illegal. Should make for some interesting cases. 
It certainly does. Well, this has been an interesting conversation. We just have a few minutes left. Uh, You know, it seems to me a homework item would be to learn what other countries are doing. I noticed that, you know, one of your, on your website, you have these uh, interlinking circles with other societies that span other countries. I think even one in in Asia or China. Uh, I'd just be curious to know what is going on in other countries. This has been an age old an age-old yeah. debate. It goes back to Hippocrates. It was going on back then before Rockefeller Foundation and ACGME and Roe versus Wade. It's been going on a long time. And and I think for the majority of doctors, uh, it's, it's not an issue in our wheelhouse because we took the Hippocratic Oath. We would never do this ourselves. Um, you know, we wouldn't be, you know, participate in this. I think for most nurses, they wouldn't participate in it. But there is a, a small fraction that are, and and we're just trying to get a, a grip on this. Uh, to be honest with you, it just seems like um, it just seems like the most discussion happens on this among politicians, and, and there probably should be much more discussion on this among doctors and nurses, and certainly the the, the, the patients themselves. It just seems like it, it's it's just goes up to this. This vitriolic, I mean, when Roe versus Wade got overturned, I I saw the vitriol. Women were out marching and people were screaming and and politicians, senators were out there. I remember Elizabeth Warren just going absolutely nuts. And and I was trying to say, listen, wait wait a minute. You you know, I don't see doctors out there going nuts. And uh, so I'm just trying to get a a handle on it, because whenever there's a contentious issue that's gone on for hundreds, if not thousands of years, it, chances are there's no solution. There's no immediate solution that everyone's going to be happy with. Uh, people on both sides will say, well, my view is right and my view is right. And we're at this uh, um, this nexus. So I, I you know, I, I side on this uh, on the on the side of just fulfilling the Hippocratic oath. I took an oath like you did. And it should it should be that yep. simple. And I think nurses take a similar oath and they should. And we should never exclude the nurses because none of this would happen without the nurses. Everybody wants to to usher this up to the doctors, but it's also if there wasn't a single nurse that participated in this, a lot of this wouldn't be, be exist either. So it's probably true. Okay. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. And I'm Dr. Peter McCullough.